Hey guys, I'm really excited to announce we are going to be doing a giveaway. What this is going to be is a two-man, two-day guided waterfowl hunt on November 18th and 19th in Northeast Kansas with Steady Wing Outfitters. In order to be signed up for the drawing, there's four things I need you to do. You need to go on to Instagram and follow the Steady Wing Outfitters Instagram page. You have to follow the Wicked Hunting Report Instagram page. In that Wicked Hunting Report Instagram page, I'm going to be making a post about the giveaway. In that post, I need you to tag three friends in it, and then you have to subscribe to the podcast. Once you've done all four of those things, follow the two Instagram pages, subscribe to the podcast, and tag your three friends. I need you to screenshot all four of those things and send them in a message to me on the Wicked Hunting Report Instagram page. Once you've done that, I'll enter you into the drawing. Uh, the drawing will go until the last day of February. Then on March 1st, I will draw the winner. And then on March 2nd, in that episode, I will announce who the winner is. So good luck. Tell your friends. Get as many people as you can signed up. The more people you have signed up, the better options you have that one of your buddies is going to win it and invite you along. Good luck. Before we get started, I want to tell you about our sponsors. Uh, first, we have DuckSeason.com. That's D-U-K-S-Z-N.com. Uh, go on there and check it out. You can trade hunts with people from across the country. Uh, there's a good duck hunting forum on there. You can buy some merchandise. Uh, there's also the Salty Fowl line of clothing on there where 100% of the profits go to the conservation of eiders. Next, we have Steady Wing Outfitters. It's located in northeast Kansas, and they're guiding for waterfowl, turkey, and deer. Uh, follow them on Instagram and Facebook, and if you want to book a hunt, you can call Mikey Soberano. His number is 785-410-2304. Next, we have 701 Pursuit. That's Caleb and the guys making hunting and fishing videos on YouTube. Uh, you can check them out there, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all those places. They also have a website. It is the numbers 701pursuit.com. Go on there and buy some clothes, hat shirts, stuff like that. Now we've got Waylon Johnson and his guide service, uh, hunting ducks and geese down in the San Antonio, Texas area. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. It's Waylon Johnson on there. Or you can give him a call. His number is 361 Four nine four seven eight six eight. Lastly, we have Highline Retrievers uh, dog training up in Northeast Montana. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. It's H I L I N E Retrievers. You can also uh, give me a call. My number is four zero six seven eight three seven zero eight three. If you have any questions on training, need any advice, any help, or if you want to set up some training in the future for your four-legged friend. Uh, thanks a lot and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wicked Hunting Report. This is Garrett. Today I'm here with Colton Gilman. He's from South Central Montana and he is a traditional bow hunter. So Colton, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, my name is Colton Gilman. I'm originally from uh, West Virginia. I moved out here to Montana in 2016 and, and uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at stickbum. Yeah. So, um, first things first, how how and when did you get started 
hunting and in the outdoors? I grew up in a hunting family. My Some of my first memories were my uncles and cousins and brother and everybody, you know, come hunting and I'd run up to see, you know, and want to talk to them if I seen a deer or anything. And, you know, I just, you know, grew up in a hunting family. Cool. So kind of, you know, some of my first memories was going to bow shoots with my dad and my brother and, like I said, some uncles. and Was everyone around you a uh, traditional bow hunter, too, or was that something that you just branched out in your own on? Nobody was traditional. Everyone shot compounds, and I started out with a compound. Well, you know, when I was a kid, everyone shot little little recurves or longbows. But I remember going to shoots as a kid, and there was this one guy. You know, he always had a flannel shirt on, and he had a longbow, and he, you know, he had arrows that were just – you know, dolled up, crested wood arrows and uh, turkey barred feathers. And, and I just remember looking at his bow on the rack. You know, we all had compounds there. And I was just 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 really interested in in his bow. And he'd shoot and he could, you know, shoot really good and hit the targets. And I was just always just really intrigued by traditional archery. But when I was about 15 years old. I dug out a little 35 pound recurve that was actually my grandma. She used to shoot field archery with back in probably the sixties or seventies. And, uh, my dad strung it up for me and I had a handful of mixed match arrows and, and me and the dog would go out there and kick bushes and I'd try to shoot rabbits. And I just, I just, man, I just fell in love with it. I was about 16. And I remember in the reloading room, there was a, uh, a recurve that leaned up against the corner. And my dad told me it was a 45 pound recurve. And, you know, I, in West Virginia, I, th- I think you had to have 40 or 45 pounds to hunt with. So I thought, you know, I could hunt with this bow. And I talked my dad into taking it down to the uh, local archery shop. And, and the guy made me an endless loop string, just just like you would a compound. And uh, it had a warped limb, but we did the old oven trick where you, you stick it in the oven, heat it up, and you kind of bend it around and let it cool. And we got the, the warp out of the top limb. And, man, I was just – I was hooked. I uh, shot that thing. I was about 16. I shot that thing for a couple years. Never did kill a deer with it. When I turned 18, I got a real job and my first paycheck. I, I bought myself a, a recurve and and man, it, I never looked back. What was the first one that you bought? Uh, it was a, a PSE Impala. And uh, I went I went to Cabela's back in them. I mean, this was 2007. Uh, Cabela's had a pretty good pretty good array of, of traditional bows had the, they, they carried the predators the the uh uh pses you know they had the impala and the kudu and and martin had the dream catcher i think it was like the mx 200 they had they a probably uh, had that Savannah. bear back then too huh yeah they had bear you know all the bears the montanas the kodiaks the grizzlies and all those and so you know but i, I bought that pse impala and then uh, i went up to cabela's and i was looking to buy a predator as about three months later i just realized it wasn't really the bow i was looking for and i went to buy a predator and, and i just didn't really like them that much the way they felt and i found a martin savannah at a uh, in the uh, bargain cave section and i bought that thing and that was my first like like real 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 good longbow was that a takedown one or is that one no that it was, was a one longbow. piece a reflex deflex as a I, I think they're one of the best uh uh production longbows out there just you know come from a factory yeah. longbow yeah, there's so many different ones. It's kind of hard to remember what model numbers are what, especially yeah. when you got, you know, compounds are pretty much, they come out, they're one flagship one, and then the next year it's a new name or whatever, so it's pretty easy to keep up with them. But, yeah, man, that that's awesome. That's kind of how I got started, too. I mean, growing up 
we have I, I got it in the closet I had a little red it was a bear something but I mean it was, it was maybe like 10 or 15 pounds draw weight and I mean there's pictures of me in diapers dragging that thing around and I guess it was my dad's growing up it was like from the 70s or 60s or whatever but yeah I started doing that and then moved on switched to compound when I got old enough to actually hunt and then now I'm older I finally switched back just the last couple of years but yeah have you have you ever thought about building your own bow self bow or anything i've built a couple of them uh i built an osage bow and ended up being a little light and then i built one and ended up being a little heavy and took a lot of set and uh i've messed around with the idea and i told myself for the past couple of years once i get 100 traditional bow kills like big game animal kills i'm going to switch to self bow stone tips i've gotten a flint knife at about i don't know six seven years ago and and but i don't know i haven't haven't killed enough with a regular longbow yet and i know that if i if i start shooting a self bow and stone tips i ain't going to come back so yeah so that was was something that was something i was gonna ask about if once you move to that point if you were going to try like stone tips because that's something i want to try but i mean i've actually got to get some animals on the ground with this so how did you get into flint napping like how do you even start with that there's one I made out of a glass bottle. Oh, that's awesome. That's just a, a hickory. Or a, no, an ash shaft and it's turkey feathers. Yeah. Antelope sinew. How did you get started in uh, the flint napping? Like, did you just decide one day I'm going to try it? Or did you, you've been thinking about it for a while? Yeah, when I was in college, I was just kind of, I don't know, interested in it. You know, I took a anthropology class and just hearing about, you know, how we fed ourselves for thousands of years you know with this stone tools and stone projectiles and and uh just kind of watched a handful of youtube videos and started with glass bottles because it was lived in uh, uh west virginia it's kind of fine, hard to find material so i started with uh just beer bottle bottoms and you know you drink some beers and pop the bottoms off the bottles and start flinting and happen and and it was, it was a good way to learn so did you uh, yeah pretty much not self-taught because i watched some videos and stuff but again you know nobody else was you know, around me really into it so with the glass bottles are you using the same tool like you would if you were on a rock yeah you'd call it i guess it's called aboriginal napping i used uh um um uh like uh equipment made from like deer antlers uh hammer stones stuff like that no modern modern materials i would notch them with a uh um like a horseshoe nail but a little more precise yeah yeah because yeah, i mean I've, I've seen videos of it and it's something i'd like to do but i mean i've got so many hobbies and different things going on if i started doing that too if i started breaking rocks for fun i think my wife might leave me yeah that's how i am that's i kind of i got into it and i knew it was a kind of a slippery slope so i backed off of it a little bit and but I'm sure one day I'll be right back into it. Have you uh, tried it with any obsidian? Yeah. yeah. How did it turn out? Yeah, it, it turned out all right. I don't know if I got any handy. I heard it that, yeah, that they I, turn I out. A, I made a handful of them. It, it chips a lot like glass. So, I mean, if anybody's interested in getting into flint napping, I mean, if you can do glass, you can do obsidian. I heard that that turns out crazy sharp if you get oh, into yeah. it like the flakes themselves if you're not careful you can really cut yourself oh yeah i got a uh, a pad that i you know put on my hand to nap with and it's just covered in blood stains <laughs> good to know i'll make sure that i keep that in mind maybe wear gloves <laughs> the first couple times yeah there's no way around it 
So you said that that you made a Osage bow that was too light. You made one that was too heavy. What what do you consider too heavy for traditional? Uh, not that it was too heavy. It was too heavy for or I don't know enough about them to really be talking about them too much. But it ended up being too heavy, and I was trying to shoot it, and it compressed the the belly grains too much, and then it ended up taking a lot of set once I took the material off to where it was uh to where it was like 55 pounds is what I was shooting for, and it was probably closer to 70. But instead of taking it down, it was tiller dry, so I just tried to shoot it that way. And it was just too heavy for me to shoot. And it was a 60-inch bow. It was a it was a really short bow for being an Osage bow. But uh, and then end up just compressing the belly grains. I'm I'm guessing because it took a, a whole lot of set whenever I did whittle it down and start shooting it at 55. Yeah, let me look at this real quick. One sec. That one I was just looking at there. My uh, grandpa built that one for me when I graduated college. He used to uh, build bows. Anyways, he built a couple for all of us uh, grand boys. Anyways, that was like the first one that he made like since the 80s. So he's kind of guessing on it. And it turned out heavy. Well, this summer when we were there shooting him, he had a scale set up and we we put it on a scale. And if I remember right, it was like 70, like two or three or something. And it's, I mean, it. I like shooting it, but man, it sucks to shoot sometime after you uh, go a couple arrows you get sore yeah i took a 73 pound bow over to australia to hunt uh, buffalo with and that was not fun to hunt or not fun to shoot so i mean that was something i was going to ask where where have you been hunting what have you hunted for uh ohio west virginia for deer and uh florida for pigs louisiana for pigs Nebraska for turkey, uh, Wyoming for a couple different species, Montana, Idaho, and Alaska. God dang, you've been everywhere. So <laughs> let's start in Australia then, farthest away. You said you hunted for buffalo. Did you get one? I did not. No, I did not get one. It was a, get- it was an interesting hunt. The, the guys I went over there with were just some guys that I met on a, a big bore rifle page on uh, facebook and, and uh, they invited me over to hunt them and they didn't know i was bringing a longbow and i informed them that i was bringing a longbow and they weren't too happy about it and they were just it was just a different hunting style they weren't used to to you know how sneaky you had to be with a with a traditional bow and how close you had to get so it was kind of a kind of a conflict uh, we hunted for seven days and it took a good four or five days to try to figure out a hunting strategy and it just wasn't enough time left it was just just different hunting styles did you get close at all? Yeah, I was. I think there was six or seven I was inside ten yards with. But that that big of that big of an animal, you really want to take just the perfect shot and not not take quartering two. And they're kind of weird. They their neck. You see a lot of videos and stuff. It was hard for me to get them to turn broadside. It was like they were so muscly that they were always quartering to you if they were looking at you. And so. And then, you know, they'd be in the water and I was waiting for them to stand up and they'd stand up and face me or, you know, just, just weird shot angles and stuff. How was the adrenaline when you were 10 yards away from one? It was, it was pretty cool. You could, yeah, it was pretty intimidating. It, it was neat. <laughs> and that'd be crazy. That would be absolutely crazy. All right. So you've been quite a few places. Is that the favorite place that you've gone hunting or what's the coolest place you've been? that's probably the coolest place we stayed in a uh an aboriginal village 
and I got to meet a lot of cool people and see see some really cool culture, you know, a lot different than culture we live in. And that was probably the coolest trip I ever took. I bet. So how was the uh, Alaska trip? What did you do up there? We went up. I've been to Alaska twice. I went up for uh, caribou once, and we ended up um, getting flown into a, a bad area. And uh, it was actually an area that was closed to caribou hunting. So <laughs> kind of hard to caribou hunt an area that's close to caribou yeah. hunting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we had a car a bush pilot because another pilot landed and was just like, "What are y'all doing?" And you know, we we were there for a, a day, half a day, and a night because you can't hunt and fly on the same day. But the next day, there was some other planes landing just uh they were bringing meat from the ridges on super cubs and then picking them up in the cessnas and taking them to town so we went everyone was talking to them we're like you know wanting to see if they've been seeing any caribou and they're like yeah this this area closed like four days ago so we had to call we had to borrow a sat phone call the bush pilot and the bush pilot didn't have nowhere else to put us so we we got we had to go back to to fairbanks and fly home so that was a big wasted trip but but I met some cool people while I was up there and got some good contacts and, and, you know, got to see the tundra and flying a bush plane. And it was, it was pretty neat. So then on the other trip, how did that one go? The other trip was last, uh, last September and it, it went really well. I went up for, uh, uh, South, uh, Southeast Alaska for a black bear and ended up killing a really nice bear. And I went up there solo and just kind of bummed around, you know, around and I, uh, rented a vehicle and just slept in a vehicle for a while. And then I ended up meeting a guy and he, he had a cabin, let me sleep in. So stayed 14 days up there and did some salmon fishing and, and, uh, shot my bear on day five or six. So the rest of the time I just got to hang out and go check stuff out and salmon fish and ended up bringing in a bunch of, bringing back a bunch of salmon. And the guy gave me a bunch of halibut too. So I brought back 50 pounds of fish. It was a, it was a great trip. So are you spotting and stocking then? Yeah, in the in the fall they're they're uh, eating the salmon that are coming up to spawn, so just kind of working. And that was that was interesting too. I've seen some videos on YouTube of people just walking the banks and and uh, you know just shooting the bears. But you know with the traditional bow, you want to be you know a little bit closer than some of the shots that I've seen the people take on on uh, YouTube. So the guy ended up being a really good help. He was telling me, you know, how to hunt them and hunt them a little bit like whitetail, you know, on the trails around on the streams. So that's kind of how I set up, set up kind of an ambush in a, an area. The pink salmon were kind of holding in the skinny water. So in the riffles, they were the, the salmon. That's where the bears would come. So I went to a, a riffle with a bunch of salmon and uh, just set up and, and waited till the evening and, and a bear come out and ended up shooting her at 12 yards. And that's going to be a surreal experience to be alone in alaska with just a little stick and a string and waiting for a bear to come through and try to shoot it <laughs> yes yeah, it was a good time yeah oh dang you got a crazy life man <laughs> so out of uh all the places you've been and uh things you've hunted what's your favorite animal to go after i'd have to say bear uh it was turkey for a long time, but I think the past couple of years, it's, I really enjoy turkey with a bow and come turkey season, I'll tell you it's turkey, but it seems like year in and year out, it's, it's bear. I love going after bears on my bow. Do you uh, chase after them here in Montana or do you go other yeah. places for them? Okay. Yeah, I hunt them in Montana. Okay. Now that's something that I, I've been wanting to do too, but I mean, 
I haven't even had time to really go elk hunting, so I don't know. I'll yeah. get time to go bear hunting. Have to wait for the kids to grow up a little bit. But uh, so on turkey hunting, I'm here up by Culbertson. We got the uh, Missouri Breaks just south of town here, and there's some turkeys in it. I've never turkey hunted, let alone with a bow. So how, I guess, how would I go about going after them? Well, the boats, I mean, it's 90%, if not more, scouting. So what I'll do is I'll start a couple couple weeks before season, and I'll start, you know, an area that I got permission to hunt or an area that I try to stay off public because, I mean, everyone and their brother now wants to run a gun, shotgun. You know, they watch they watch TV, and, you know, turkey hunting out, out west has gotten a lot more popular than it was even five or six years ago. But for the most part, I'll, you know, I'll go door knocking and stuff. And I've got people that I've, I've hunted on in the past that give me permission. And, and I'll watch and see where they roost. They'll pitch out and they'll go to feed. And then it seems like they go to water right after that. And then they just kind of loaf around and then they'll make their way back up the roost. And Merriam's is really patternable. It seems like they, they do the same loop every day. And so I'll start several weeks in advance and just watching them, you know, where they loaf, where they get grit, where they, they get food, you know, where they water. And uh, where they roost, and then uh, I, I use a blind, and I'm I'm pretty anal about my decoys. I use really good decoys, and I put real feathers on them, and and uh, so I'll set up, you know, really close to the really close to the uh, the uh, roosting tree, and set my decoys really close up. I like to run uh, two hens and a jake, and I'll, I'll run a, a jake breeding a hen, and it seems to really kind of get them annoyed that you know especially early season you know our season comes in a lot earlier than the actual turkey rut but you know the 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 gobblers are all horned up but the the hens ain't receptive yet so if you got a little little jake that's got a receptive hen under him then it seems to really fire up the the gobblers but i'll do that and then you know i hunt mostly mornings if i got a really good hot roost tree that they don't loaf close enough to see me i'll go in and hunt the evenings but i've only killed a handful of turkeys in the evenings they've mostly been in the morning Okay. But scouting and, and preparation is is 90% of it for turkeys with a bow. So you do a certain setup, like a different arrow or different tip or anything for them, or do you just rock your broadhead? Uh, just regular broadhead. Turkeys are really hard to penetrate, too. You know, everybody wants to shoot these these crazy points and stuff. But, I mean, I've got way more pass-throughs on deer and bear and all, you know, the bigger animals than turkeys. You know, turkey isn't a big animal, but it's because it's so light, the arrow pushes it. It's like if, you know, if I hold up my hand and you punch it, you know, you can't really hit my hand all that hard. But if I put it up against the wall and you punch it and ain't got nowhere to go, you know, you can really hit it hard. So I shoot regular, you know, I've shot them with two blades. I've shot them with three blades. I do like a big three blade. I shot, shoot my, shot most of my birds with a snuffer, a big three blade snuffer. Okay. Yeah, I've got... These bad boys. Oh yeah, VPAs. Yeah, that's a great head. Yeah, I got these. God, I've got my whole setup wrote down somewhere. But I mean, for what, how heavy this bow is and how heavy this arrow is, I'm sure I'll be able to get at least some penetration on a turkey oh, with yeah. it. I'd hope. But my girlfriend's killed a couple with uh, I think she's killed two or three now with a 52 or a 42 pound longbow 42 pounds at 24 inches Jeez. 520 grain arrow and a four blade magnus stinger she's killed a couple she can be a short people. little lady 24 inches oh uh, yeah but uh 
I guess I I guess I'm I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know how long ladies draw lengths usually are. I just know they usually measure them at 28. Like if you for your poundage, like 40 pounds at 28 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, she's five five three or so. You see a lot of ladies with 24, 25, 26 inch draws. Okay, so not too far off then. Uh-huh. I just got long arms. Mine's at 30, so. Yeah. Man. Well, now you gave me all my turkey info I was going to ask at the end. <laughs> all right. So let's kind of move away from the hunts a little bit and get into some info about traditional hunting. Um, I know it's kind of the craze now, but uh, if somebody had never shot traditional bow, you know, maybe just done a little bit of archery or has just done rifle, if they want to get started, how would you tell them to get started? Where do you go first? I'd say get a decent bow and find somebody, whether it's emailing somebody, calling somebody. I mean, I'm, I always answer I answer a bunch of, you know, arrow questions and bow questions and stuff on Instagram or Facebook or wherever. And I'm always happy to help. But tuning your arrows is a is a huge thing with traditional bow. I see a lot of people at bow shoots and stuff, new guys, you know, they'll go out and get that that really cheap bow. And that's fine. But I always try to say it's kind of like a guitar. Like if you go down to the pawn shop and you get a a crappy guitar for thirty dollars and the, the strings are quarter inch from the fretboard and you know, it's just really hard to play and you're not going to have fun with it. You're not going to stick with it. So, you know, whatever you would put into a compound bow, like if you're willing to go put six, eight hundred, twelve hundred dollars into a compound bow, there you go. You're willing to, you know, it, it's a bow. It's not any cheaper. You know, if anything, it can be more expensive, but it's not any cheaper. It's not you're not going to go the cheap route. You know, you can buy cheaper arrows, but, you know, your bow, buy a good bow, you know, and you can buy you can find good bows for three, four hundred bucks. 200 bucks on ebay you know sometimes but find a good bow and get it get it get your arrows tuned find somebody that that can help you you know and it's it's probably not going to be at the bow shop i've had a lot of people you know i i tell them to do this do that and then they go to the bow shop and you know it's completely different and they steer them down the wrong path but uh, you know having a tuned arrow you know it's got to hit where you're pointing the bow you know if it's if it's coming off your shelf all wonky and i've had people have penetration problems on deer too you know your your arrow isn't isn't flying correctly and all your weight isn't behind the point of your arrow you know you're you're, you're not going to have good penetration on animals you're not going to be consistent on shooting and you know getting the right setup is is key it's like going out with a rifle that isn't sighted in and thinking you're a bad shot you know you're not a bad shot yeah that was pretty much exactly what i've been telling people is First off, find someone that knows what they're talking about. Like, I'm not the most well-versed on it. So find someone that knows what they're talking about and get opinions from them and do your research and get a bow that you can afford, but it's a good one. Don't just, like you said, go down the pawn shop and buy something shitty, like with a guitar, same with a bow. Because, like you're saying, if it's, it it could be warped. You might not even notice it because you don't know what you're looking at and you could have a mess. And then... Don't be like I was when I was a kid and just shooting my dad's leftover arrows that were 20 yeah. inches too long for me and way over spined. And to actually tune your arrows and to be with someone that knows what they're doing to get it tuned, it improves a lot. Because I was trying to shoot this one that my grandpa made just with some arrows that he had given me because – or what I had for my compound. I knew I had to tune my stuff for my compound, but I didn't know how extreme it had to be on this. And then I met uh, Colton Hurst, 
and he kind of he kind of walked me through and got me set up and ever since then i mean the game game changed a lot i went from shooting giant groups and not knowing where i was gonna hit to i mean out to 30 40 yards i was i was smacking a dinner plate easy yeah so yeah colton hurst is another wealth of knowledge he's 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 a good dude another yeah. thing too is yeah. don't you know, a lot of people get over bowed. They shoot a, you know, you, you're shooting a heavy bow, but it sounds like, you know, you can. But, uh, you know, 40, 50 pounds. My good buddy Bob Smith builds uh, big stick longbows. He hunted a couple years ago. It might have been for two years with 43 pounds and killed a bear, killed a big deer in Iowa. Like, you don't, you know, with, with, with the proper setup, sharp broadhead, tuned arrow, uh, and, you know, don't shoot, you know, at hunting distances and a heavy arrow, a good heavy arrow. You'll be fine. You know, 40, 50, 60 pounds. Whatever you're comfortable shooting, shoot it. It doesn't matter what your buddy's shooting. It doesn't matter what he thinks you should be shooting. Yeah. Like this one I got hanging behind me. That's that's one that Colton built. And that one's 48 pounds at 28 inches. So I'm probably close to 49.50 of mine. Yeah. And that one's such a joy to shoot compared to this log with a string in it that my grandpa made yeah. but i mean like i'd go from shooting that for a couple of days and be like i need a little slowdown but i don't want to give up my reps and so i'll switch back over to that one for practice and it's so much more fun to shoot but yeah, I I kinda... 50, 52 at 30 so i mean yeah. two pounds an inch with that bow so four pounds yeah like yeah but i'm shooting this one because i made my grandpa promise i'd shoot something with it before he passed on so promise yeah. i'm trying to keep you wanted to see pictures of it so that's where we're on that and then once i'm sure i mean i'll bring it out and shoot it but once i get something i'm gonna be looking more to retire it make sure to keep it in good shape and um what would be a bucket list animal or hunt that you want to go after my number one's a grizzly i want to shoot a grizzly with my longbow so bad i can't stand it i'm about to move to alaska just so i can do it but <laughs> Grizzly and javelina is big on the list too, as silly as that is. But uh, you know, I'd love to shoot a moose. I seen a moose while I was in Alaska, and, and man, it was. I really wanted to put an arrow in it. So I'll probably go back after moose. But grizzly bear is definitely number one. For sure, I think that's uh that's on most people's bucket list. That's mine for sure. I want to go to Alaska to caribou, uh, moose, and a grizzly. I would like to do it with a traditional bow, but. I've been saying that since I was in high school, and I haven't got one step closer since then. So, well, the best way to shoot one with a traditional bow is don't take a rifle. Yeah, <laughs> true. That's why I had to sell my compound bow because I kept I practiced with this for a little bit during the summer, and then once it get close to deer season, I switched back to the compound. So that's why I finally just had to sell my stuff and go full in on it. It don't take too many bucks walking by at 50 yards till you start side eyeing that compound. Oh yeah, you're telling me. You are telling me, <laughs> man, I had, I brought this out this early fall for antelope with my son and we were, we got snuck up behind this hay bale pile and we had some antelope out and they were just kind of feeding. They were making like a zig or a zigzag pattern. Like they'd come close to us and then away and then close and away. And there was multiple times they were within like 45 yards. And I was like, if I had my compound, there was a good oh. buck in there too. If I had my compound, I could have had them dead to rights easy. And I was just sitting there looking at that little, at this long bow. I was like, God dang it. I couldn't get any closer <laughs> or anything, but it is what it is. It makes a lot more fun. 
you got to set up a blind by a water hole. I didn't really have time this year. We uh we were expecting a kid right at the end of September, so I didn't. It was more like a spur of the moment type of stuff. Yeah. But if, if I draw again next year, I, I mean, it took me from high school to this year to draw my first antelope tag. That's how unlucky I am. So <laughs> if I draw on this year, I'm going to actually set up by a water hole and pattern some out, stuff like that. So what is your most uh, memorable hunt that you've been on? Probably my first elk. With a, I shot it with a recurve, but my first elk, my first bull elk with a bow was definitely my most memorable. How did that go? Oh, yeah, it was, I think it was, I kept track. I went to, when I lived back in West Virginia, I went to Colorado twice and just didn't know what the hell I was doing, just bumbling around. And then I moved out to Montana and I think it was my second or third year hunting out here. I had finally all come together and uh, I was easing up a ridge. I'd hunt them, hunted them in the same area for like six days. And a buddy of mine came out and we hunted for four or five days and then he left. And of course it was the next day I went up, or next day I went up in there and I was easing my way up a ridge and uh, I was just going, you know, 60, 70 yards and doing just some light cow calls, maybe some cow and calf calls and breaking some sticks and just, just acting like an elk still hunting up this ridge while the wind is in my face. And uh, I was, I was going up through there and, and I just caught a glimpse of an antler in the brush. And uh, I just kind of like hunkered down and I got my binoculars up real slow. It was about 80 yards away and there was an antler and I dropped my binoculars down and like 15 yards beside of it was another bull and it was looking right at me. So it saw some movement, but the wind was coming straight from it to me. But he knew something was up. So he just looked and looked and looked and finally stood up and it made the, uh, you know, the initial bull that I see stood up and uh, he kind of, you know, kind of hooked him like, let's go. And they went to walk away and I hit some cow calls and nothing. And I was just out of desperation. I ripped a bugle just to get their attention and they stopped. And I hit them with a, I, uh, whatever you'd call it, like a regathering mew on a cow, kind of a come here call. And uh, the bull that spotted something, you know, he, he wasn't falling for it. But the the bull that I seen initially, you know, he, he didn't see nothing. He was just reacting to the other bull. He turned and started walking my way. And about 10 yards to my right, there was a real steep hill, like a big steep hill, like slide down your butt hill. And that bull walked out about 50 yards ahead of me and was walking the edge of that hill, looking down over that hill. I'm sure he thought that the cow was down, you know, the group of cows were down over the hill. And uh, he was walking my way and he got to like 40 and I was like, oh, shit, this is going to happen. This might happen. He got to like 30 and I was like, oh, shit, this, this might happen. He got to 20 and I was like, all right, just turn broadside. He got to 15 and I was like, all right, just turn broadside. He got to 10 and I was like, oh shit, this, this ain't going to happen. And he come up to six yards and there was nothing but air and a couple of wrist sized trees in between us. And I was on my knee and I had an arrow knocked and everything. And he stood looking over me for, I'm sure it was a handful of seconds, but it seemed like forever just looking over me and looking down the hill and just facing me at six yards. And I mean, even the frontal shot wasn't, wasn't given to me. It was you know and i've never took a frontal I, I wouldn't be opposed to it if it was perfect but i just i didn't have a shot and all of a sudden he kind of knew something was up and he spun to run you know kind of just threw his head down and spun and i come the full draw and i don't know if he just caught the movement or hesitated for a second but he was broadside at eight yards and i just thumped him sunk it to the feathers and he crashed down over the hill and and i 
uh, I sat there and cried like a baby. It was, <laughs> I, I think it was the 66, 66th day that I hunted elk. It, God. it was, it was well, uh, it, it was, it was hard earned and yeah. it was just, it was absolutely amazing just to know that he was nice. He was a nice four by four. I had no idea he was just a four by four. I thought he was five by five, six by six, whatever. He was a nice wide elk, and you know, and that was my first one, and it was it was absolutely amazing. I sat there on a log. I didn't even go. I didn't go look for him for twenty minutes. I heard him die, but I just sat there and just I had a wave of emotions going over me. It was the biggest sense of accomplishment, just absolute elation. Man, that's. I can't imagine that. I mean, just listen to that story. That kind of got my adrenaline going. I couldn't imagine what that <laughs> felt like. Man, that is crazy. So how many elk have you gotten then? I guess, do you get one about every year or how fortunate are you? Um, I shot one. That was four years ago and I killed one the year after that. And then the year after that. And last year I, I didn't kill one. But I went to Alaska for most of elk season. Yeah. I went up there September. I think I gave myself two or three days to elk hunt, and then I went up to Alaska. Did you uh, start bear hunting in West Virginia, or did you do that once you moved out here? That's funny you ask that. Uh, my first bear hunt was my first hunt I ever went on, and my dad used to love to tell the story. Um, when I was – I don't even remember it, so I had to have been like three, four – two i don't know i had this little six pound at 21 inch bantam recurve this little custom-made recurve he bought me when i was like probably when i was born and uh <laughs> my dad was uh my mom and dad was in the house and they just turned around and they couldn't find me they were looking all around you know and they my grandma and grandpa's house was like you know 60 yards up the hill from me from us and uh they called and was like hey did colton walk up the hill and they're like, no. So then everybody was frantic looking for me, looking under the house, looking in closets and everywhere. And we had a bow target about 60 yards behind the house. And then it was a wooded area for about 100 yards and went back to this old barn. And my dad just walked out this flat past the bow target. And he said he found me about 60 yards past the bow target. And I had my little recurve. And I said I was hunting bear. So <laughs> so, so uh, I guess that was my first solo hunt was a, was a bear but did you, uh, you, did you get one with it? I, I did not get one. Yeah. Ah, dang it. I, I passed up three. They were just too small, I guess. <laughs> but, but when I was like 18, I started going on bear hunts in West Virginia. Just, you know, I called them bear hunts. They really just camping trips and, and, you know, I had a deer tag, a bear tag or whatever. But when I moved out in Montana, that was one of my, I really wanted to shoot a black bear with my bow. And I just obsessed over them and hunted them really, really hard. And I, I live in a, I live in an area with bears, but we have a quota. So and once the bear hunting gets good, like I hunt a lot way before the bear hunting gets good because it seems like we get three to seven days of good bear hunting and the rifle guys just shoot up the quota. So, yeah. so I've killed two in Montana with my bow, but I've hunted a lot of days for those two. So that's something too. Like I said, I want to, start getting into it how would i start that especially with me being on the other side of the state where the bears ain't how how would i get started i uh, really just just I hate to give off too many too many things on a podcast but you don't have but, to get too specific i guess yeah, yeah south south facing slopes are the ones that green up first in the spring just find find some green slopes and try to get away from people and and you know just 
if if you want to keep your spots good, take your bow. You know, you can shoot a bear spot out really, really, really fast. And a lot of people don't yeah. understand that. And I've got bear spots that's been shot out. Like, you know, a, a good mature boar is, you know, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13. I shot one in Idaho, they said, was 15 years old. So, like, you know, you don't just get another nice bear in your area the next year. You know, you could. You know, they move around and stuff. But bears can be shot out of an area really quick. So if you find a really good spot and you like chasing them, just chase them with your bow and you'll have years and years and years to hunt. So is it, because I mean, deer population is so high. It's so like you shoot a buck out of there, it'll be another one in there the next week. But is it because their population yeah. is so low or is it just because of their age or density. what? Sorry, they're, they're a real low density animal. They're just not, you know, not as many of them per square mile. The reproductive system, a sow only has cubs every two years. So they don't, you know, they don't, it takes a while to get their uh, their uh, their um, population backs up back up, you know, in areas. And like I said, they're low density animals, and you know, it's I think it takes three years for a sow to be sexually mature. So you know, they stay with their mom for two years. They only had cubs every other year. So it's just it's a it's a slow process to get a population back up. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean. Yeah. So have you, uh, in all your tapes and through the mountains, have you run across a grizzly at all? Yeah, I've got a few grizzly stories. Oh, why don't you tell some? <laughs> Everyone likes to sweat. Yeah. I got one on my Instagram. I don't, it was September uh, 2020, I think. We got charged over in uh, Wyoming. I was hunting with my buddy August Desson. And uh, uh, I was doing some cow calling. And uh, I was we, there was a cow out there about... 150 yards so i started doing some lost calf calls you know just trying to get the cow to come up and uh and i backed up about 40 50 yards behind august trying to call the cow past him and the cow come up to like 30 yards he's shooting a longbow too you know give us didn't give us a shot us too far away whatever and the wind was coming from her to us you know we played everything right and all of a sudden she just turned and bolted and we're like well that's that's weird you know she must have seen a glint off something you know something she didn't like and we walked over to where she was and we we're just sitting there talking and uh all of a sudden my buddy said and my buddy august said uh uh bear bear you know and he was whispering because he had a bear tag you know we're always looking for bears in the fall and he's like bear bear it's a cub it's a it's a grizzly it's a grizzly start hollering so we turned and there was a it was a cub grizzly coming down the trail we we're standing on about 30 yards away and uh, so we turned and backed out into the field that was 20 yards behind us. And we started walking backwards and pulled out both of our pistols. And uh, the cub turned and ran back to the mom. And the mom come up ahead of the group. There was two two cubs and a mom. And uh, we got out in the open. And you can hear in the video, if you turn it up really loud, she's running and hoofing. Like, hoo, 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 hoo. And you can hear it getting louder and louder. And she turns the corner and we're out in the field. And we've separated at that point. We're six, seven yards away from each other and i think that really helped i think she was coming and once she turned the corner and seen us that you know there was two of us and whatever she skirted us and she was i think it was 12 13 yards in the video when she's walking with her cubs and my buddy shoots us 454 casul on a rock you know a couple feet in front of her face and she didn't even flinch she just stood there and and i had, I had my phone out because you know my buddy had his pistol out and it I thought for sure we were going to have to shoot her, and luckily we didn't. 
but we both had a line that you know she would have had to cross the shooter and and she didn't cross that line <laughs> that's crazy man i i don't know what i would do in one of those situations i'd be sweating like <laughs> a pig did you guys have bear spray did you say um i don't i used to carry bear spray and i had a, a bear spray incident one time and i don't carry it anymore <laughs> go off when you didn't want it to yeah i was packing a bear out in idaho and uh i must have i had to hide and, and some meat in my backpack and when i i was struggling to get it on my back i guess i i brushed off the safety on my mm-hmm. uh, bear spray and we we're walking up the hill me and my buddy bob and my girlfriend and uh we're walking up this logging road and there was this tree that fell across the road you had to like hunker down to get get through and like I was hunkering down and I guess the backpack depressed the the trigger on it and the safety wasn't on it. So I was like kind of doubled over trying to get under that tree and it sprayed down my leg and down my arm and just kind of wafted up into our face. And it was a, it was a bad deal. It looked like orange spray paint. It just doused me. Yeah, I bet. I heard that so stuff maybe, is terrible. Made me kind of leery about it. Cause I do a lot of hunting by myself. And if you get a face full of that by accident, I don't know what you would do. Yeah, I guess. Uh, is there any other uh, grizzly stories you got? Any more you've run into? Yeah, I uh, I was staying in a hammock, and I like I like a hammock in grizzly country because you know you can't. I was carrying bear spray at this point too, and you can't you can't spray in a tent. You know if a bear's got y'all wrapped up in a tent. So I was staying in a hammock. It was here in the Bear Tooth, and. Uh, I was standing in a hammock. I keep my rain fly up high enough to where you're laying there. You can see out of it. And another thing that I carry, a lot of people don't talk about, but uh, it's an 850 lumen stream light, like a really, really, really bright flashlight. Okay. Something that I can see, you know, 300 yards, it'll shine. So, and I was hunting by my, you know, I was up there camping by myself and hunting. And uh, I was back in pretty far and laying there. It was a full moon in September and, and I could hear some popping and cracking coming down the hill. I just thought it was an elk or a deer or something like that. And it walked out into this opening and there was enough moonlight. I could see that it was a bear. And I was like, well, that's cool. And that's, that's a bear. And it, it got out in the opening a little farther and I could see a big hump on his back. And I was like, oh shit, it's a grizzly. And the wind was coming from it to me, luckily, or unluckily. I don't know. It might've just ran, <laughs> but uh, it turned and just started walking towards my tent. It was like, or my hammock. You could tell it was just like, you know what the hell is that and uh i unzipped my my breast pocket of my vest that i kept my flashlight in and i was reaching for my pistol and my flashlight trying not to make any noise and i hit it with a light and that thing turned inside out it scared the hell out of it and uh it it ran into the brush and then circled around downwind of me and was stomping and huffing and stuff and and once it got downwind and realized i was a person i guess it didn't want to mess with me but i stepped it off the next morning it was nine yards when i hit it with a light <laughs> God damn. You're a braver <laughs> man than me. <laughs> Sitting in a hammock, too. You're pretty much a burrito for him. Yeah, yeah. At least you can fight your way out of a hammock. It's hard to fight your way out of a collapsed tent. True. True. <laughs> yeah, man, that always that always makes me nervous. I'm not going to lie. I, was, I haven't spent too much time in grizzly country, but uh, my brother-in-law and uh, sister-in-law, they live over on the west side of the state over by Fairfield. And uh, we live by Shodan, and we went camping with them over the 4th of July. And the night that we were out there, me and me and my brother-in-law, we were sitting outside the camper, everyone else was sleeping. 
I mean, it was middle of summer and there was other people around, but we're still in grizzly country. Anyway, so he was telling me about all their stories where they're worried about grizzly bears and stuff when they're hunting. And we had had a few beverages, so I was pretty tuned up. And he was telling me all these stories and they were getting my head. So then we were just sitting there in the dark with just the fire. And I was just thinking about grizzlies. And every time there was like a little snap or anything behind us, I was just like about turning inside out. I was... I mean, oh yeah, when I when I first moved out here and started, you know, it's started backpacking and hunting and stuff like that, and and in a lot of those areas you just can't get to before daylight, you know, if you're four or five miles in, so you got to camp up there. If you want to hunt that hard, you got to camp. If you want to hunt that bad that area, you got to camp. And and I was pretty nervous about it for for a while, and uh, you know, you'll have a dream that that there's a grizzly outside your tent or there's something outside your tent and you wake up and there really is something, but it'll be a, a vole or a raccoon or a skunk or something. Yeah. But everything's a grizzly when it, after the sun goes down. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, man, what was I going to say? Oh, I mean, I told the story on there on here already, but I mean, I got a, I got scared by a Angus bull walking in in the dark from a stand so i don't know how i do walking through grizzly country in the dark i'm sure i'd be nervous about everything but but the I mean, day after I mean, we hunted go ahead uh, the day after we got charged by that grizzly over in wyoming we were walking out in a, an angus cow we jumped out of a, a little willow swamp and we were wholeheartedly convinced that it was a big old mean grizzly <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i can be about i can about imagine you guys would be on edge after that and i mean yeah up to a point it's good to be nervous and looking around a little bit because if you get complacent oh, yeah. that's when things could go wrong because i mean i'm sure you've heard their uh mediator story about when they had that grizzly in fognac island they were all yeah. just sitting there nobody thinking about it they're all complacent and then one come through but yeah you get kind of used to it and you you know you kind of I mean, you can run into them they're out yeah there. well i mean even now they're getting close to the towns because when i lived in shoto I'm sure you've seen the pictures, but there was a mama and two cubs in a grain bin right on the edge of town, right on the edge of Shoto. And I heard this last summer or fall or something, they had they shut down a part of the town because there was a grizzly bear going through town or near the park or whatever. Yeah, so, we get them in town here. Man, that's crazy. Man, now you got my adrenaline going just talking about <laughs> that type of stuff. So what is the uh, craziest thing? you've seen while you're out hunting anything odd or strange you can't explain um not really that i can't explain um you know the grizzly encounters are definitely you know something out of the ordinary i've had a couple mountain lion encounters that are out of the ordinary but tell me about that i mean i've never even i think i've seen mountain lion one time but i've never seen one in the wild yeah i was calling elk and uh you know, I think it really helps, you know, you're by yourself. You're not talking about what you're going to do next. You're not talking about when you're going to go eat lunch. You're not talking, you're not bitching about how you ain't seeing elk. You know, you're just quiet the whole time. And I was calling elk and I was doing some cow calf, you know, act like a cow calf pair. And, and, uh, I just turned and like 60 yards away, there was a mountain lion just walking in, you know, and they, they say you call them in a lot more than you would ever know because you just, they come in, see you, hear you, smell you, whatever, and, and bolt. You just never knew they were there. And uh, it came in, and uh, I, I never stepped it off, but it was well inside 10 yards. 
and I had a mountain lion tag and unfortunately it, it didn't go very well. I, it come out and there was just a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree in between us and it, its head and its front shoulders come out a little bit and it just looked up at me and I come to full draw and tried to shoot through this little branch and I nicked the center of the branch and, and shot over her back or shot over its back. And uh, it ran out to about 15 yards and stood there again. And, and I real easily got my, got an arrow out of the quiver, quiver in between the rise and the string, got it knocked up on the shelf. And, and I come about half draw and it took off running and I just let it and shot. And uh, I probably shouldn't have took the shot, but, and I ended up hitting it, hitting it bad. And uh, I tracked it and tracked it and tracked it. And I never, I never did recover it. I come back the next day, I come back three days later looking for ravens. I really, really, really wanted that line. And, uh, and then the last bull I shot, I, uh, I shot it. I was like 22 yards or so. And, and, and I hit it a little bit far back and it took off running and it, and it, uh, stood out there at like 80, 80, 90 yards. And I threw my binoculars up and it was labor breathing. I was like, all right, I got, you know, I got long. And, uh, I texted my girlfriend because I had service where I was hunting. I said, Hey, I just shot a bull. You know, the hit was a little bit far back, but I think it's good. And it, it bedded down. And, uh, uh, you know, I was texting her, you know, and, and I looked up and the bull had stood up and switched ends and I pulled up my binoculars and there was a mountain lion right under it, like right under its chin, looking up at it. And it, it come up, you know, I must've called it in too when I was doing my call and then I shot the bull and, uh, it, the shot wasn't great. And I was really worried that that lion was going to take him up over the brush. Cause I was looking through my binoculars. There wasn't a whole lot of blood coming out. So, and, but luckily the lion just kind of left. I don't know if I've heard that they don't they don't want to eat sick animals or already dead animals or whatever. But and it was a it was a young lion, too. I've heard that they don't they don't really go after elk until they're four years old, five years old or something like that. You know, until they're bigger. For some reason, he, he didn't he didn't really mess with the elk. And uh, but that, that was cool to see. And that that's that's freaking <laughs> wild, too. I mean. And then. Uh, uh, one more, I called in one. I was hunting coons with a had a a, a, um, a lucky duck roughneck raccoon caller that I call coyotes with, and uh, I was playing coon fight down in this really thick area, and I was bow hunting for coons, and uh, a mountain. I heard something coming, and I got all ready thinking it was a coon because I don't know if you've ever called coons before. It yeah. is a ball. They just yeah. come hard charging, run over the call. So I'm you know I'm all jacked up and I'm ready. And I, you know I got tension on the string. And here comes a fucking mountain lion and the call's seven yards, seven, eight yards away from me runs right up to the call and just stands there and looks at it. And I'm in just awe. It's really cool to see, you know, a mountain lion that close. I suppose that one wasn't season then. It was in season and I had a tag, but in Montana, you're not allowed to shoot them if they called in by electronic call. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know I haven't gone mountain lion hunting, so I didn't, I don't know any of the regs for him, but yeah. If someone were to uh, come up to you and ask you why you do what you do, like why you hunt stick bow and why you do it so much, like what would be an example of a reason why you do it? I've always thought that to me, it's the purest form of happiness. It's it's really going back to your roots. It's it's kind of, you know, it, it seems kind of 
cliche, but it's like, why we're here. You know, we've, yeah. for thousands of years, we've engaged in these activities and, and the, I think it's, to me, it's the highest form of happiness. It's, 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 you're bringing home animals. Your, your, your family is fed for a while. It's, it's something that, especially with traditional archery, it's something that you worked so, so hard at, you know, it's, it's hours and days and, and months and years of working so hard at something. And then, and then it actually happens. It actually works. It's, it's, you're successful and it's, man, I just, I can't, I can't explain it. It's, it's yeah. like a drug. If you could bottle it up, you'd put it, if you could bottle up the feeling that I get when I kill something, you put every drug dealer out of business. I promise you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, uh, I know people that have, uh, they had hunted rifle their whole lives. And I mean, it's no secret where we're at in Montana that, uh, if you want to go shoot a deer with your rifle, it'll take you five minutes. You could do it in town yeah. if you wanted to. But when I explain to people like through high school or college or whatever, why I like to hunt with a bow, I'm like, it's so much more of a challenge and you got to put in so much more work. It's not, you just sight in your gun for five minutes and then walk out there and shoot something. I mean, if you want to be good at it, you got to practice, you got to put in the work, you got to put in the time and there's going to be tons of failed stocks and you're going to be frustrated and pissed. And why, why am I doing this? I could just take the gun out. And then when you actually get it to come together and get something. And then, I mean, even when I'm eating something that I shot, I still feel like I can remember the story and I still feel like a sense of pride. Like I, like I don't with, with a rifle i mean i don't know how better to explain it but then anyways those some of those people have convinced to start archery and like obviously they're doing a compound they're not stick bow yet but i mean they'll come back to me later and say that uh they didn't realize what i was saying was actually true and when you know one of them actually got something and he pretty much said exactly what i said that the feeling that he got and then when they're eating it it's it's just something totally it's totally different like you said it's like tapping into our uh, ancient ancestors type of deal it's how we're we're here right now it's just something else it really is i love it i'm not going to give it up no. so let's let's roll into uh you're big into fly fishing and uh i'm just a little into fly fishing so we, I'm not going to be as in-depth as you are, but have you always been a fly fisherman, or how did you get started with that? Well, it was kind of, you know, I don't fly fish for every species. Obviously, there's species that, that you know, it's better to, you know, you're not going to fly fish for catfish. You're not going, you can fly fish for bass and stuff like that. But I grew up, you know, in West Virginia, and it was on 150 miles to a trout stream. So, you know, I grew up you know, throwing spinning rods and, and bait casters and stuff for bass and catfish and, and stuff. But I'd take the fly rod out when I was younger and, and, and catch the bluegill and, and some bass out of my grandpa's pond. And then I ended up, you know, my grandma or mom would take me up to the mountains in West Virginia. And I started, started fly fishing and just really loved it. It was, it was hard. I've always been into shit that I'm not good at. Like if I can find something I'm not good at and just obsess over it and try to get good at it, that's, that's, that's my jam. So, and I, I, I sucked ass at it. So it was something that I just obsessed over and, and I really enjoyed it and got really into it. And I come out to Wyoming when I was 20, probably 22. And I was a fly fishing guide for a summer and I literally just trout bunged. I slept in a waiter closet at a, at a fly shop that, that hired me. I was 
pretty much homeless all summer. It was amazing. And uh, I come back after that, and I was in college at the time, and I just got an associate's degree in um, wildlife sciences. And I was going to go on to get my bachelor's degree and try to – I wanted to be a biologist. But I don't know. that just – I kind of got out of that, and I got offered a full-time position at a fly, fish, a fly shop in West Virginia. So I, I ended up um, – I just did one semester to get my – uh, yeah, my bachelor's degree in uh, wildlife management, and I ended up moving up to West Virginia, up to uh, Pocahontas County, and was a fly fishing guide for like a year and a half. And uh, I just, I loved it, man. We traveled out to Wyoming, we traveled to Montana, we fished West Virginia, all these different spots, and we're really into finding the little brookie streams that nobody ever knew about, and I just obsessed over it. And then I wanted to move to Montana because seemed like all I was doing was was trying to save up enough money to come out here for a week or two. You know, if I could get an elk hunt for nine days or I could come out and fish for seven days, like I just scraped up pennies all year to come do that. So that's that's why I moved out here, you know, bow hunting and fly fishing. That's cool. So what kind of, I guess, what's your favorite species to go after a fish? Oh, man, I really I haven't went after trout a whole lot since I went steelhead fishing. If, if you like trout fishing, just never, just never go steelhead fishing. <laughs> it is, it is, it is amazing. Yeah. But, uh, I really like the steelhead, but when I went to Alaska, I, I fished for the coho salmon and, and pink salmon was in the river too, but that was just amazing. <coughs> so when you were up there, you said that they were going to spawn. I mean, how did they taste is pretty much what I'm going to get at with it. You could you could tell like the the cohos the pinks were in the river for a while at that point so we didn't we didn't keep any of them they were pretty much spawned out but uh, the cohos were really late running this year up in that area and uh, the ones we caught most of them had sea lice on them we were less than a mile from the ocean and it was it was they came up into the river probably that day so they were they were really good we had them for dinner two nights ago so for the people listening that don't know what it is what is what is sea lice Oh, I'm sorry. It's a, uh, um, it's just like a parasite that attaches on kind of like a leech or something like that. And you can, you can see them on the fish when they're really, really new to coming into fresh water. So what's the, uh, I guess coolest you could call it, but what's like, yeah, the coolest fish that you've caught, like coolest species you've gone after and got probably steelhead. It's, it's one of those things where you, you know, a great steelhead trip is, hooking into a couple of them you know and if you can put a couple in a net it's just absolutely amazing and uh i had one trip over in idaho where where i did really 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 well in a day and it was it changed me it kind of kind of messed up my trout fishing because once you set the hook on a 36 inch trout and it it you know it you set the hook on and it changes its mind and says fuck it i'm going back to the ocean and just runs your line out as fast as it can swim <laughs> it's pretty amazing yeah man i've seen videos of that and that's something i want to do but i think it's just gets back to i don't i don't have the time to do that yet but that's definitely on the bucket list um i guess backtrack a little bit if you want to explain what a steelhead is for the people that don't know i guess but really they're just an ocean run rainbow trout so you know the, the, the parents lay the eggs fertilize the eggs 
and they spend, I'm not really, really familiar with the whole life cycle of them, but I'm pretty sure they spend a year or two in the river, you know, just kind of getting big enough to, to, to make the journey to the ocean. Then they go out in the ocean and spend three, four years in the ocean, just getting really big. And then they come back as what they call a runs and they're 25 to 30. This is the area that we fish 25, 30 inches, 25, 28 inches, maybe 30. And then uh, they go back to the ocean after they spawn, unlike salmon that die whenever they spawn. The steelhead will actually return back to the ocean. And then they come back as bee runs. And then the area that we fish are, are mostly bee runs. And, and I think the biggest one I ever caught was uh, 36, 37 inches. And I've seen 40s caught. And they're just, I mean, it's like a 40-inch rainbow trout that has been working out, you know. Yeah, that's, man. 40 inches. That's, that's freaking wild. I can't even imagine. Cause I mean, we got, we got our little trout pond here. That's full of rainbow trout. And we're catching ones like, well, I mean, 18, 18 inches is on the bigger that's side nice of them. Trout. And even for them with a nice trout, that's, it's a crazy fight. I can imagine on a fly rod catching a 40 inch rainbow trout and having it decided <laughs> it wants to go back to the ocean. Yeah. So would that be your uh, target species? If you could only go after one for the rest of your life? That's her. Yeah, I really like the salmon. I like so the steelhead was fun, but you, you throw a lot of beads, you throw a lot of smaller stuff, so you're still almost like trout fishing. But the salmon, it was big, like one aught, bright pink, bright blue, bright white and blue, bright. You know, it was it was a lot of cool flies, and I tie my own flies too. So it was, you know, the months leading up to that Alaska trip was just just going down to the fly shop and you know getting those weird looks when you're buying one aught hooks and fucking pink flashaboo and big pink cone heads and all the stuff that, you know, nobody ties around here. And yeah, that was that's, fun. that's another hobby I want to get into that. I think my wife would think I was crazy for finding a bunch <laughs> of magnifying glasses and little hooks to tie stuff up right yeah. next to my pile of rocks that I'm hitting with other rocks. <laughs> so, uh, man, um, do you do any, uh, not fly fishing like do you do any ice fishing or yeah yeah we do some okay. ice fishing really just real 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 amateur ice fishing we just go down and you know six seven times a year just drill hole we don't have any electronics or nothing but you know we catch trout we actually got into some uh, catfish through the ice there last year that was pretty cool really i've never done that yeah we, we went and targeted them we were fishing for perch but we got into i guess a little pot of channel cats That'd be pretty cool. Especially they've been through rods pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, I've, I've, I really like catfishing. I grew up on the Ohio River, so we were fishing for uh, channel cats and blues and, and big flatheads. And I come out here and I fish the Missouri River, the Yellowstone and stuff like that for catfish. And I, I really enjoy that. You know, obviously we're fishing with gear, not yep. fly fishing. Yep. Have you uh, seen them guys that'll uh, fly fish for pike? Have you seen that yeah. at all? Yeah, I got some I got some good buddies back east that are really big into musky fishing. And I've went I've never caught one on a fly, but they're they're crazy into musky fishing on a fly rod. I can't imagine what that would be like on a fly rod. I mean a good sized pike just on a regular rod is good enough. Yeah. So I guess kinda like we did with the uh traditional bow, if somebody hasn't been fly fishing, they've seen videos and they want to get started, how would you recommend they get started doing that? Um Fly shops, fly shops are really knowledgeable about it. It's, it kind of, kind of sucks that it's, it's, 
there really ain't no place to go with traditional archery short of like you know down in uh uh colorado there's a really good archery shop tom clum owns it uh rocky mountains rocky mountain specialty gear or something like that i think it is but you know your average bow shop probably isn't going to know a whole lot about traditional archery but your average fly shop is you know they can really point you in the right direction and and a lot of them will have you know demo rods or or uh, rods rental rods or whatever and they can they can show you how to cast and sometimes you got to pay a little bit to get a little casting lesson but it is well well worth it yeah so i mean so like right up here fly fishing isn't really a big thing and i know like we got a lot of like midwest listeners that fly fishing isn't really a big thing over there too so let's like if they're gonna walk into a Cabela's or Shields or Sportsman's Warehouse, I guess I don't. Sportsman's Warehouse is more on this side of the country, but yeah. like say they got like fly fishing setups, like like an Orvis. Let's say they got like a rad yeah. reel combo. What kind of like what rod or what weight and what uh, I guess what would they look for just for a for yeah. beginner guy? So the weight of your rod is more of what flies you're planning to throw rather than the fish you're planning to fight or fish for. So if you're going out with a you know smaller bass poppers and and catching panfish and stuff like that you know your five weight your six weight is going to be good with if you're wanting to target pike mostly and you're going to be throwing like the big uh uh, articulated streamers seven eight inches you're going to want to get up into the eight nine ten weights but uh just a good all-around rule of thumb uh five six weight you you can do a lot with it you're not gonna be able to throw the big pike flies and stuff but you're gonna be able to fish for everything from bluegill bass crappie uh if you do come out west you can fish for all kinds of trout species you can throw just about any other than like the really big articulated streamers yeah on a five six weight and then if they wanted to get it started building a little tackle box or whatever what kind of flies i guess would you look for because I, I obviously that depends on the season what kind of bugs are there but yeah you can get you can get as intricate as you want with it you know if you get a wider wide array wide array of uh of um uh, nymphs you know your your pheasant tails your hare's ears you'll you'll hear that that term a whole lot uh that's just a a, a generic nymph imitation and uh, i always tell people you know get you know some 12s and 14s some 16s if you really want to like some 18s and of uh different colors and stuff and i used to do an entomology lesson whenever i would do a fly fishing lesson and one of the things i would do is I had a nymph box and I would go down to the, the river and I'd start flipping rocks. And if you go down, you know, if you're trout fishing, go down to the riffles where the, uh, the fast moving oxygenated, oxygenated water is. And that's where you'll find your aquatic invertebrates and start flipping some rocks. And uh, you, you'll see them. They look like little, little crabs or something, you know, little bugs crawling under the rocks. Grab one, throw it in your fly box and look at it and say, that looks like that. It don't matter if it's, you know, it don't matter if it's a, 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 whatever uh uh i'm blanking right now but it don't matter what bug it is you just matching you know what they're eating in the river and whatever they're you know eating in the river it's you don't have to know the name of it you just look and say that fly looks like that and another thing is uh they're always eating minnows you know any fish will eat a smaller fish so your uh woolly boogers your uh clousers your uh you know, just, just any minnow imitation is a good thing to throw. You know, you, you don't have to know a whole lot to throw them. You don't have to know how to get a good drift. You don't have to know how to, you know, how much shot to put on your nymph rig. Throw them out, let them drift, strip them back. That's a, that's a really good kind of 
you know, dummy fly. Yeah. And uh, YouTube is your friend when it comes to that. For sure. Because, I mean, yeah, you can uh, you can learn a lot through YouTube because there's thousands and thousands of hours of videos, info you can watch. And the biggest thing is learning how to cast before you get out there is a big yeah. deal. Because if you go out there and you don't know what you're doing, especially if there's branches and trees around and stuff, you're going to have a you're going to be. You're not going to enjoy it. It's pretty much it. You're going to give up fly fishing right away. So, but yeah, practice patience and when it actually pays out, I mean, I enjoy it more than uh, just regular fishing, bait fishing, I guess you'd call it. But you put a little bit more effort into it. Yeah. A little bit more out Same thing it. is just like switching over to traditional bow. Exactly. So now let's roll into you are a trapping fool. What kind of animals you go after when you're trapping? I really started trapping in college, and I was back in West Virginia. I did some water trapping, some muskrats, some minks, some beaver. And uh, but my favorite thing back east was red fox. Uh, I really targeted the red fox back east. And then when I came out here, it was a lot different because, you know, you deal with a little bit of mud back east. But out here, you you deal with a lot of really, really, really hard frozen ground. And uh, – I trapped pretty hard for a couple of years when I moved out here for coyotes. And that was a great way for me to get in good with some landowners and get acquainted and, you know, come back and turkey hunt, goose hunt, duck hunt, pheasant hunt, whatever, deer hunt. And, and I was, you know, you, you start catching some uh, coyotes off a, a sheep rancher's place, you know, he'll, he'll give you, you know, whatever you want to do. But uh, I kind of got away from it. In the past couple of years, it, it just fighting the snow with work, fighting the frozen ground and all that stuff. I really just pull my traps out whenever a rancher that I know is having a coyote problem. And uh, uh, beavers, too. You know, a lot of ranchers hate the beavers and the uh, muskrats in the irrigation ditches and stuff like that. So I really just nuisance trap anymore. But I so was you, pretty heavy for a while. Are you, were you a foothold or a snare guy? A foothold. I ran some snares and I've caught a lot of stuff in the snares, but it was almost too, you know, footholds I struggled with for a long time, you know, really dialing in your sets and getting them to, you know, putting your trap, getting it bedded right, putting your trap in the right spot. I really struggled with it. So I kind of enjoyed it a lot better than snares. Yeah. So on foothold, um, were you, uh, doing bait at all or were you trying just like to catch them on a trail or what kind of style were you doing hey you know most of your sets i made or most of my sets i made were dirt hole sets you know with bait some lure you know and a little bit of backing and all that stuff but you know you can set scent post sets you can set uh uh what the hell is that called flat sets you know all these different stuff but 90 percent of what i would set was bait or you know foothold or uh Bait hole sets. Okay. So I guess I'll kind of make this short and sweet since you're not huge into it anymore. But um, for people wanting to, I guess, kind of like we just did with uh, fly fishing, if you're wanting to get into it, what kind of stuff would you start with? Like if you want to be, let's say, targeting coyotes. Because, I mean, different size traps for different animals. But if you're going to get started going for coyotes, which most people do, how would you get started? If you're going to get started with coyotes 
I don't know. I think you're going to get pretty frustrated. So <laughs> make sure you, you know, if you got some muskrats in your area, that's really, really good to throw some muskrat sets out too. You know, if, if, if you're dead set on trapping coyotes, mix it up a little bit. So at least you have, you know, you're, you're finding some, some success regularly mm-hmm. on your trap line. If you put out, you know, 15 coyote sets and you check them five days in a row, it gets pretty shitty. And, you know, if, if you blank for five days in a row, so set, set some coon traps you know dog proof coon traps are 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 idiot proof they're amazing throw a handful of dog food in there if you want a scoop of tuna you know a marshmallow whatever dog proof coon traps are really fun uh if you got muskrats in your area trap muskrats with 110 of bears that's that's a whole lot of fun and and you know just kind of mix it up with your with your coyote trapping because it can okay. get frustrating so what is the best way for uh, scent elimination on your traps? Do you are you a boiling guy or what do you do? Uh, I do boil them. I I wax them, boil them to clean them and wax them. But I was always a spray paint guy, so I would you know buy my traps and and boil them in Dawn dishwashing liquid, you know something to degrease them really good, and then I would spray paint them and let them hang. You know I'd do that midsummer, so they would be ready. You know just hang them outside, and then I would wax them. And it seemed like it seemed like out here, I don't know if it's the cold weather or what, you know, maybe the lack of moisture, but they were a lot less finicky out here than they were back east. You know, if I would catch an animal, you know, even if it wasn't bloody or nothing, you had to pull that trap and put a freshly waxed trap in and rewax that trap. But out here it seems like you can get away with a little bit more. Okay. But, you know, if 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 they're digging them up, you know, you gotta pull them and rewax them. If you get a lot of blood on your trap if they're chewing on it really hard and kind of gets a wax off, but, but, and then I do, I use a kneeling pad. I used to, I don't know. Some people just use like, um, like hip waders. So you're kneeling on rubber and I like rubber boots, but as far as like uh, gloves go, I used to run rubber gloves and then I would just have a designated like mechanics gloves or, or like leather gloves yep. just for setting my traps. And I'd set my my stuff down, pull those traps, pull those gloves out of my basket, put them on, make my set, take them off, throw them back in my my basket, so you're not you know door handles and messing around with other stuff with those gloves. Yep. Which and again, it's like everything else. YouTube is your friend. You can learn so much from that place. Yeah, I think it's what Management Advantage is a really good coyote trap on YouTube. So you were supposed we were supposed to uh, record this yesterday, but you were a bit busy uh you want to explain what you had going on last night well yeah i uh there's a a kid named roman uh his full name's uh stops in pretty places and uh he's got a pretty cool last name he's a a a native american kid down on the crow reservation and uh i met him through a mutual friend of mine uh tyler moore and you know we just the kids just crazy about hunting and just crazy about, you know, wanting to learn all this about hunting. And, and so I took him down there coyote hunting. He was, he was interested in learning how to coyote hunt. And so I went down there last week with him and we made stands all day and just had a really good time. And, uh, I got a phone call from him said that he got drawn for a bison tag over in uh, Gardner, Montana. And, uh, he asked if I could accompany him, accompany him on the hunt. And they said, yeah. So I, I went over there with a, uh, and helped out with a bison hunt. And that was a really cool experience. So did they have to use uh, traditional firearms at all, or could they just take whatever they had? Whatever they had? Yeah, they, yeah, they, they just you know use whatever. 
he uh he used a 270 you know just deer rifles is mostly what they what they take were they pretty wild or i guess can you get into that hunt at all because not very many people have been on bison hunts in the past no, few centuries it's, it's an area that, that that it's a species that don't get really harassed too much so they're not they're not like a an elk or a deer or anything they're you know they're not really wily okay but it was a cool experience you know there was several people there and they 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 come through and and they shot their buffalo and and you know they didn't go too far from the road and it was nice to be able to get the truck within 200 yards of them and made a little bit easier tracking job or easier packing job yeah how was it cleaning that thing it was just like a bull elk just a big damn animal big it was nice to have some help i just i just went to work on it and roman you know held the legs and kept tension on the hide and everything and we skinned it all out for uh for a rug for him and uh you know took all the meat and put in the sled and pulled it back he's gonna have it processed but we had it all quartered up and in the back of the truck oh man i can't imagine how many pounds of meat that would end up being yeah it was i I don't know it was probably it was a cow so it was probably 700 pounds 800 pounds yeah picture that's like four to five i mean deer or whatever that's that's wild it was definitely a hind quarter you couldn't hardly you couldn't hardly pick it up to put it in a contractor bag so was there is there rules on that like obviously no wanton waste but i mean like are they having to take everything they can like tongues heart everything or uh yeah they, i mean they take the heart and uh the liver would have took the liver but there was one shot that was in it that was a little bit far back so you know we didn't want to get into the the gut cavity but um so we didn't take the liver but you know we took the ribs we took the neck meat we took the hinds we took the fronts we took the back straps we took a bunch of meat off you know the, the the little things when you when you skin a deer they don't mess with you know it's it's a lot of meat on a bison. Yeah. So there was nothing but a a pelvis and a spine left on the carcass, you know, in the guts when we left. That's wild. So you you say you uh, guys took the uh, I can't find my words right now. <laughs> you when you took the. Uh, uh, neck meat where you guys just taken off in quarters or you do like when we do a deer we cut it kind of up the middle and kind of like roll it off did you guys huh. do it like that or was it just like chunks no we just did it in strips because you know it's laying on its side so oh i suppose you got to take not- one side off and then roll it over and take the other side off so we just you know took it in big strips just for burger meat yeah see i was gonna i was gonna ask when you got that thing off and laid out how long it actually was like all the way around because i mean like a deer once you pull it off it's Know, a little less than the length of a backstrap, depending on if it's a rotten buck or not. But we had it, we had it all laid out, and I, I mean, three people could lay on it. Good God! Good God! That's why. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we, uh, I think we got enough stories to make at least one episode out of this. Um, <laughs> I'd sure love to have you on in the future once you got more stories, or if you ever want to come on again. I'm sure people would love to hear you. You got some good ones. But uh, before we go, do you uh, want to plug your social medias? I only know you already did your Instagram, but is there uh, if you want to do that again and any other ones that you have you want people to follow? I just have Facebook. It's just Colton Gilman. 
And then my Instagram is a stick bum. Yeah. Wasn't there uh, like an underscore in that or something? Uh, I think so. Stick underscore bum. Yep. That was it. So if people want to see it. It's a cool Instagram. There's a lot of, a lot of cool photos in there. You should definitely go check it out. Um, I guess, is there uh, anything else you want to say or let the people know before you go? Not that I can think of. Just spend as much time as you can outside and enjoy every minute of it. Awesome. Perfect. Well, again, thanks for coming on. And uh, if you're willing to, we'd be more than happy to have you on again. I appreciate the invite and just you got my number. Awesome. All right. You have a good night. All right. You too. See ya. All right. Bye.